Envision this. Your patient is a 52-year-old woman, mother of three, with chronic kidney disease, or CKD, secondary to autosomal-dominant polycystic kidney disease, which was diagnosed when she was 32 years old. Despite adhering to all medical treatments, including her antihypertensive drugs, her renal function is worsening, and she is approaching the need for renal replacement therapy. On this office visit, she wonders when she will need to start dialysis or receive a renal transplant, especially since she now feels well. As you are thinking about your patient, you consider the different options for renal replacement therapy. How would you discuss her options among these modalities and why they are needed for her? Welcome to Audio Breaks. This is Ed Barnes breaking down renal replacement therapy in your ears. After completing this brick, you will be able to 1. Define renal replacement therapy, or RRT, and list the main approaches to RRT. 2. Discuss renal transplantation, including technique, indications, contraindications, and complications. 3. Discuss hemodialysis, including technique, venous access, modalities, indications, and complications. And four, discuss peritoneal dialysis, including technique, peritoneal access, indications, and complications. Part one, what is renal replacement therapy? Renal replacement therapy, or RRT, is the use of either dialysis or renal transplantation to replace the function of native kidneys that have failed due to end-stage kidney disease. Renal transplantation is the RRT of choice due to better mortality rates and lifestyle improvements. However, for patients who cannot receive a transplant, dialysis is life-saving and is done in one of several ways with the goal of removing waste products and excess body water and balancing electrolytes just like the actual kidney does. However, dialysis can't replace all the functions of the kidney. For example, the kidney's endocrine functions like renin, calcitriol, erythropoietin synthesis must be corrected by other means. Globally, millions of patients receive RRT. It is estimated that more than 10 million people might benefit from it, but because of inequity in developing nations, more than half of the world's people are unable to access it. In the United States, RRT is covered under Medicare and national insurance, even if the patient is not yet 65 years old. It has therefore become a large item in the U.S. health care budget. Over 750,000 people receive some form of RRT in the United States each year. Total Medicare spending on chronic kidney disease, or CKD, including end-stage kidney disease, exceeds $100 billion annually. Let's stop for a quick quiz. Which RRT approach is the treatment of choice when possible in patients with CKD? Transplantation is the treatment of choice for patients with CKD when possible. Although you may never manage the dialysis of a patient during your medical career, unless of course you become a nephrologist, you will certainly care for patients receiving RRT. So understanding how they are cared for is important. Now, let's take a closer look at the common forms of RRT. Part 2. What is renal transplantation? 
There are many benefits to renal transplantation over dialysis for end-stage kidney disease. In comparison with long-term maintenance dialysis, for most patients, renal transplant improves the quality of life and reduces mortality risk. Living donor transplants are performed when available. This is because in most cases, living donor grafts function longer than deceased donor grafts. There remains a big shortage of donors, so the wait for a transplant can be years long. Multidisciplinary transplant teams, including patient advocates, assign patients to local transplant waiting lists based on medical and psychosocial factors. For living donor transplants, how is a kidney harvested from a donor? First, a thorough screening is conducted of prospective kidney donors to minimize long-term risk to them and to ensure a good match with the recipient. Kidney harvesting from a living donor is now mostly performed using laparoscopic surgery. Two or three small incisions are made above or below the umbilicus to remove the kidney. The largest resulting scar is only a couple of centimeters long, and there are no long-term risks for the donor. The transplanted kidney is usually placed into the recipient's pelvis rather than the native location. This is because the pelvic location provides easier access for reconnecting the graft to the arterial and venous systems of the patient's iliac artery and vein. The patient's native kidneys are typically left in place unless there is a particular indication for removal, for example, in cases of malignancy or painful enlargement from polycystic kidney disease. After the transplant, Patients must take multiple immunosuppressive medications daily, including drugs like prednisone, tacrolimus, mycophenolate, or sirolimus. Patients' adherence to their drug regimen is critical to avoid rejection of the transplant. Here's another quick quiz. Why is a transplanted kidney placed in the recipient's pelvis? A transplanted kidney is placed in the recipient's pelvis because of easier access to the blood supply. Next, let's discuss the indications and contraindications for renal transplantation. Any patient with end-stage kidney disease is potentially a candidate for transplant, but the ideal scenario is to refer a patient to a transplant center before they reach end-stage kidney disease to allow ample time for the transplant evaluation. This way, the patient might receive a transplant before ever needing dialysis. In practice, due to limited donors, this is not always possible. Because of the limited donors, patients are often refused for transplantation. Reasons for refusal may include active infections, malignancies, or a significant shortened life expectancy because of advanced age, or severe underlying cardiac or other disease. Patients undergoing transplant need to be able to adhere to a complex drug regimen or have a strong home support. So a medical history suggesting treatment non-adherence also can be a contraindication. Keep in mind that there are some possible complications of renal transplantation. First, the immunosuppressive drugs patients undergoing renal transplantation must take can increase their risk of infection from such pathogens as cytomegalovirus, Epstein-Barr virus, herpes, polyomavirus, and pneumococcus. In addition, the risk of malignancy in patients who are immunosuppressed is three times higher than that of the general population. Renal transplant recipients also are susceptible to transplant rejection. 
Even if they take their medicines, rejection can occur at any time from immediately after the transplant to years later, and it can occur even if all their anti-rejection medications are taken. Lastly, even if transplanted, patients may have diabetes, hypertension, or coronary artery disease, lung or peripheral artery disease. It is important that we detect and treat these comorbidities to give patients the best possible outcome after transplant. Part 3. What is hemodialysis? While transplantation is only done in patients with end-stage kidney disease due to CKD, dialysis may be performed for either acute kidney injury or CKD. The most common type of RRT in the United States is intermittent hemodialysis, usually performed in a dialysis center. Intermittent hemodialysis is an enormous business in the United States, with more than 500,000 patients receiving this treatment at a cost of over $100 billion. But centers are concentrated in more urban and suburban areas, making access to care an issue even in the United States. These centers are more often commercial in the United States, but also exist at public and veterans administration hospitals. Hemodialysis is very limited in some parts of the world. Hemodialysis involves filtering the patient's blood through a dialysis machine to remove waste products and excess fluid, and to balance electrolytes. Hemodialysis relies on a fluid called dialysate that is supplied by the dialysis machine. The dialysate moves in a counter-current fashion to the patient's blood within the dialyzer a synthetic semi-permeable membrane that is attached to the dialysis machine. The machine has a pump that shepherds the patient's blood along through plastic tubing. Heparin is used to anticoagulate the patient and circulates in the dialysis circuit to prevent the clotting of blood in the tubing or in the hemodialysis filter. How does hemodialysis actually work? Blood is circulated on one side of the semi-permeable membrane, or dialyzer, with the dialysate solution circulating on the other side. The solutes in each solution move passively along their concentration gradient. Urea, creatinine, and potassium move from the blood into the dialysate, which contains either none in the case of urea and creatinine, or lower in the case of potassium concentrations. On the other hand, bicarbonate moves from the dialysate, which has a higher concentration, into the blood. Sodium, chloride, magnesium, and calcium are typically contained in the dialysate at concentrations similar to that of the blood, limiting significant movement and fluctuations of these levels. Let's pause for a quiz. What substances are removed from the blood through intermittent hemodialysis? Through intermittent hemodialysis, urea, creatinine, and potassium are removed from the blood. Hemodialysis requires stable, sterile access to the bloodstream of the patient. Since patients are dialyzed multiple times per week, it would be traumatic to both patients and their veins to insert a new wide-bore catheter each time. So instead, hemodialysis is commonly performed using an arteriovenous fistula, or an AV fistula, which is surgically created using the patient's own vasculature and typically placed in the non-dominant arm. 
Other types of venous access used for hemodialysis include synthetic arterial venous grafts, placed surgically, as well as a large hemodialysis catheter percutaneously placed into the internal jugular or subclavian veins. Percutaneous catheters are sometimes tunneled under the skin. Tunnel catheters are used for longer durations and outpatient therapy, while non-tunnel catheters are used for more urgent or emergent access. Both AV grafts and catheters have a much higher risk of infection and clotting compared to AV fistula, and so are less desirable. This is especially the case for catheters, which should be replaced as soon as practical. Hemodialysis usually lasts three to four hours, and in outpatient hemodialysis, it is performed three to four times per week at a hemodialysis center. The centers are quiet, and many patients read or sleep during treatment. Unfortunately, treatments can be inconvenient and tiresome for some patients, increasing the risk of missed dialysis sessions and therefore complications. Some patients have difficulty arranging transportation to and from the center, and often patients feel fatigued after the treatment, not allowing them to work productively that day. All in all, hemodialysis can really affect the patient's quality of life. Because of some of the limitations of intermittent hemodialysis, there are other modalities in use. An increasing number of patients are being trained to use specialized form of the dialysis equipment to perform home hemodialysis. Home hemodialysis is typically performed each night while patients are asleep. Despite this convenience and improved outcomes versus in-center hemodialysis, the cost of equipment and the complexities of training and adherence have limited the feasibility of home hemodialysis for all patients. Outcomes are better than other modalities in some studies, but this may be due to the selection of healthier patients. Continuous renal replacement therapy, or CRRT, is another form of renal replacement therapy similar to intermittent hemodialysis, used exclusively in hospitals. Like hemodialysis, it requires central venous access. However, unlike intermittent hemodialysis, it runs steadily, usually 24 hours per day. It's increasingly being used for acute dialysis, especially in intensive care units for patients requiring large amounts of fluid removal daily and or those who become hypotensive during the higher blood flow rates of intermittent hemodialysis. It's very resource intensive, especially on the nursing staff, so it's sometimes cost prohibitive. The indications for dialysis are different depending on whether the renal failure is acute or chronic. In a setting of acute kidney injury, it's important to know and recognize indications for urgent hemodialysis. They include metabolic acidosis with a pH of less than 7.1 that cannot be reversed medically, refractory hyperkalemia with a level of greater than 6.5 milliequivalents per liter, fluid overload refractory to diuresis or uremic signs and symptoms like pericarditis or encephalopathy or unexplained decline in mental status. Other common indications for acute dialysis include lithium and aspirin overdose and ethylene glycol or methanol ingestion. All can cause mental state changes and other severe symptoms which can require hemodialysis to accelerate drug removal. Like lots of other things in nephrology, there is a mnemonic that is helpful in remembering the acute indications for urgent hemodialysis. 
The five indications for urgent hemodialysis follow the mnemonic A-E-I-O-U. A for acidosis, E for electrolytes like hyperkalemia, I for intoxication, O for overload, meaning fluid overload, and U for uremia. Now moving on to chronic hemodialysis. The reasons to start a patient with end-stage kidney disease on dialysis include signs and symptoms of uremia, for example, pericarditis, pleuritis, sensory problems such as restless leg or burning pain, persistent itching, increased bleeding, confusion, or cognitive changes. Next, hyperkalemia or metabolic acidosis that cannot be controlled with drug treatment. Also, volume overload resistant to diuretics and dietary restrictions. And finally, weight loss or poor appetite. In practice, dialysis is started in anticipation of the aforementioned symptoms when the glomerular filtration rate or GFR falls below 10 to 15 milliliters per minute even if uremic symptoms are not present. This is done to avoid complications and to begin dialysis when the patient is not feeling very ill. Let's stop for a quiz. What are some common examples of poison injection or drug overdose requiring urgent dialysis? Glycol or methanol ingestion and lithium or aspirin overdose require urgent initiation of dialysis. Hemodialysis can be a life-saving intervention when the kidneys are not functioning, but complications can create significant problems for clinicians and most importantly for patients living with renal disease. Vascular access thrombosis is common and requires repeated catheterization, balloon dilation, or surgical revision along with infusion of thrombolytic drugs like TPA. The AV fistula can also be stenosed and open restoring flow through the vessel. Bleeding also can occur at vascular access sites and can be quite severe and difficult to control. Vascular access infection can occur even though many precautions are taken with the fistula, graft, or catheter. Infections in catheters are most frequent. Infections are generally treated with antibiotics, but some serious infections require more involved treatment, including surgical graft excision. Hypotension during or after dialysis results from large amounts of fluid removal, around 3 to 5 liters, during a treatment. Patients may develop orthostatic changes and be at risk for falls after dialysis. High output heart failure is a complication secondary to the use of an AV fistula or graft. Fistula decreased systemic vascular resistance, or low afterload, causing a compensatory increase in heart rate and stroke volume. This results in increased myocardial oxygen consumption, so we may find that some patients, especially those with ischemic heart disease, exhibit signs of heart failure such as dyspnea or peripheral edema. Dialysis amyloidosis is an uncommon complication that occurs in hemodialysis patients when the serum protein beta-2 microglobulin is not cleared from the blood by the dialyzer and instead slowly deposits in tissues around the body. It is seen in patients who have been on hemodialysis for at least five years. Dialysis amyloidosis most commonly results in shoulder pain, but also may cause carpal tunnel syndrome, cervical pain, and bone cysts. Part 4. 
What is peritoneal dialysis? Another form of dialysis is peritoneal dialysis, which uses the patient's peritoneum to filter the patient's blood, since the kidneys cannot. Peritoneal dialysis requires less technical expertise and is used more commonly in Europe and Asia than in the United States, and especially in developing countries. Its use is now increasing in the United States. Peritoneal dialysis is best used in patients who have some residual kidney function and who still have some urine output. Patients should be alert and able to actively be involved in their own care. A catheter is placed into the peritoneal cavity and a dialysis solution, dialysate, of water, salt, dextrate, and other compounds flows through the catheter into the peritoneal cavity. After infusion into the peritoneal cavity, the dialysis solution draws in the waste products and excessive fluid from the blood across their concentration gradient. Fluid flows because the highly concentrated dextrose in the dialysate makes the dialysate hyperosmolar compared to the serum. The solution is instilled for a period of time and substances equilibrate across the peritoneal membrane. The fluid is then drained from the peritoneal cavity and replaced with fresh solution and the dialysis process is repeated. For acute kidney injury, for example in children, peritoneal dialysis may be prescribed continuously for ongoing clearance and fluid removal. For end-stage kidney disease, peritoneal dialysis is generally used as a home dialysis modality, where the patient and a caregiver are trained on the use and is performed multiple times each day, often while the patient is sleeping. Working patients can perform this during work breaks. Peritoneal dialysis requires a minor procedure to insert the catheter into the peritoneal cavity. The creation of an AV fistula is not required as it is for hemodialysis, which is one reason some patients choose this type of dialysis. The indications for peritoneal dialysis are the same as for hemodialysis as we discussed before. Let's pause for another quiz. What is used as the filter in peritoneal dialysis? In peritoneal dialysis, the peritoneum is used as the filter. Like hemodialysis, there are complications of peritoneal dialysis that should be discussed. Bacterial peritonitis often results from a lapse in sterile technique as the patient manipulates the catheter leading into the peritoneum. But some cases occur due to gut flora reaching the peritoneal space. These infections can quickly cause the patient to become extremely ill. Clinical signs and symptoms include abdominal pain, fever, and cloudy fluid. Common organisms are skin contaminants, with bacteria such as Staphylococcus epidermidis, Streptococcus, and Staphylococcus aureus, and some gram-negative bacteria from the bowel, urinary tract, or contaminated water, like Enterococcus, Escherichia coli, Klebsiella species, and Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Bacteria peritonitis is treated with intraperitoneal antibiotics that are added to the exchange fluid. If the infection cannot be cleared with antibiotics, some patients will need to have the catheter removed and will have to transition to hemodialysis. Other peritoneal dialysis complications you should know about are gastroesophageal reflux, pleural effusions, and blood in the peritoneum, also known as hemoperitoneum. 
Additionally, the increased peritoneal pressure from the fluid may lead to ventral or inguinal hernias. And that brings us to the end of our discussion on renal replacement therapy. Now, let's recap to see if we've completed our goals. First, can you list the three main forms of renal replacement therapy? The three main types of renal replacement therapy are renal transplantation, hemodialysis, and peritoneal dialysis. Next, are you able to name the two types of donors for renal transplantation? The two types of renal transplantation are living donor grafts and deceased donor grafts. Next, are you able to name the five indications for initiation of acute hemodialysis? Recall the mnemonic A-E-I-O-U, A for acidosis, E for electrolyte abnormality, mainly hyperkalemia, I for intoxicants, like dialyzable substances, O for overload, meaning fluid overload, and U for uremia. And finally, can you name the most common complications of peritoneal dialysis? Bacterial peritonitis is the most common complication of peritoneal dialysis with the common organism being skin contaminants with bacteria such as Staphylococcus epidermidis, Streptococcus, and Staphylococcus aureus, and some gram-negative bacteria like Enterococcus, Escherichia coli, Klebsiella species, and Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And that's it. Armed with your newfound knowledge on renal replacement therapy, let's get back to the patient from the beginning of the episode. Your patient is a 52-year-old woman with chronic kidney disease, or CKD, secondary to autosomal-dominant polycystic kidney disease with worsening renal function nearing end-stage kidney disease. How would you discuss her renal replacement therapies and why they are needed for her? You discussed the three main forms of renal replacement therapy, including renal transplantation, hemodialysis, and peritoneal dialysis, their indications, contraindication, risks, and benefits. You note that, though peritoneal and hemodialysis seem to be equally effective, renal transplantation is the ideal therapy as it improves the quality of life and reduces morbidity and mortality compared with other options. You also explain the decision and initiation of dialysis should occur before she feels ill in order to reduce complications. Your patient shares she'd like to pursue an evaluation to be a transplant candidate and that if there's a significant delay before transplant, she wishes to talk to her family first about the forms of dialysis. She hopes to discuss this decision at a scheduled follow-up visit. And that's it for our show. Make sure to like and subscribe if you like what you hear. And remember, your feedback helps us to improve. You can enjoy the full Brick experience online at www.usmle-rx.com. Complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. So go check that out if you haven't already. Until next time.